You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Hey folks, I know that most climbers go into the mountains to get away from the scary realities of modern life. And complicated real-world things like run-ins with the law can frighten and confuse you and cause you to leap from your sprinter and run into the night while being chased by a Utah statey named Rulon and his bloodthirsty, drug-sniffing German shepherd. But don't despair. Just like you got over your fear of the internet tubes and managed to download this podcast, there's a cure for your fear of the legal system. Dan Markoff is a climber, a normal cast listener, partner at Atkins and Markoff, and he has set up an email hotline to field any of your questions about the law. Dan knows you'd rather be avoiding reality in the mountains rather than facing it in the courtroom. So why don't you let him help you out? Email climbing lawyer at gmail.com with any questions you might have. Once again, that's climbinglawyer at gmail.com. All right. Thanks for your time. Let's get to it. We got to get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That side of town. That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. I'll say, you really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed climbing with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather, bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes. And don't forget our friends at Defiant Bean Roasters. Defiantbean.com. Enter normal at checkout for a discount on great coffee. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Normal Cast. This is your host, Chris Caloose. It is October 9th, uh, about 7 o'clock Mountain Standard Time. This is episode 44 of the Normal Cast. A conversation with Iraq War veteran Joshua Brandon about climbing, about the mountains as therapy, about post-traumatic stress disorder, about Josh's efforts to help his fellow veterans, and a lot more. So look forward to that. Before we get to that, I want to um, give you guys a heads up about a, a company down in Colorado Springs um, about a year ago, a little more than a year ago. No, it was about a year ago. Um, I got a very generous donation um, from some guys that have a company, a high access company in Colorado Springs here in Colorado. And since then, they've put up a website and are offering classes and equipment for getting into high access work and things like rigging, like uh, repairing towers, like high access window washing, all those sorts of things. And um, I know a lot of climbers that spent their entire lives sort of working on a set of skills that then uh, maybe are hard to translate into a job. This is definitely one of those options. So I'm going to do a little advertising forum over the next couple months, but just I uh, want to start by saying that the website is allaccessindustrialtraining.com. That's a lot of words, but I'm sure you can find it, allaccessindustrialtraining.com. Again, they have classes, certifications, and gear over there. And if you head over to the website and want to talk to them, make sure and tell them that the Cast sent you. Like I said, it's an option to use these skills that we were spending so much time and effort building. You can use them as a career, as an idea for funding your climbing trips. So go check that out. I'd like to advertise uh, also for an event that I'm going to MC. It's a fundraiser for an organization called Climb for Life that gets underprivileged kids out on the rock. It is a showing of the Real Rock movies. Um, it's on October 19th and down south of Denver. Anyway, if you're living in the area and you haven't seen those movies or you want to see them again, you can come down to this event and help support this organization that is dedicated to uh, getting those kids out on the rock. And if you want more information or want to get tickets ahead of time, which is suggested as the event sold out last year, go ahead and uh, head over to Climbing for Life. And that's the word for, not the number four. If you go to Climbing for Life with the four, 
uh, you'll end up in someplace strange. And if you just do climb for life, you'll also end up somewhere strange. So it's climbingforlife.org, not com, org. And uh, click on the uh, get your tickets for Real Rock. And once again, they called me a genius over there, a goddamn genius. That might be the first time in my life. Okay, on to the interview with Josh Brandon. Now, I met Josh at the trade show on the floor, was introduced uh, actually by someone who I had also just met, a guy named Stacy Bear. I'll talk about after the after the interview. And uh, in the moment, he was telling me about kind of what he's doing with the Sierra Club to do outreach to veterans. And right away, I just said, yeah, why don't you come in and tell me about it in an interview? And just a few hours later, we sat down. So it was kind of fun. I didn't know anything about his story. I didn't know anything about him. And uh, it turns out that he's been through quite a lot. And uh, it turned into quite an enlightening and inspiring conversation that I had with Josh. And I know he's excited to have you guys hear about the programs that he's running over at the Sierra Club. So if you are inspired by this, you know, go to the website, normacast.com. I've got some links on the post that can get you to his programs at the Sierra Club if you want to help out or just find out more about it. Or if you know a veteran who might be interested in something that Josh is doing, you can uh, send them over there. I haven't thanked you guys for listening in a long time. I've kind of forgotten to do that. So thanks for listening. Let's get to a a conversation with Joshua Brandon, a man on a mission. I mean, it's just like two worlds colliding. There's no doubt about it. You know, military versus, versus sort of outdoor groovy hippie culture you know I took I probably took about well three months of leave when I got out and then probably another eight months before I even decided to work and I just climbed and boarded and read and mm-hmm. just kind of just right so you know then I was ready to come back out in the world and, uh-huh. and hang out so so I'm sitting at the uh, the roadway in with Josh Brandon I just actually ran into Josh and decided to pull him in here. I'm at the Outdoor Retailer Trade Show. This is the Roadway Inn Chronicles. I don't know. It's like seven or eight. I've been doing this for three years now. So, In fact, hey, Roadway Inn, like, how about some love? How about a free room next year? Because yeah. I, keep, I keep punching your, uh, your hotel, your lovely hotel in Salt Lake City on this thing. Uh, I asked uh, Josh to come in here because Josh is uh, running a program in charge of a program at the Sierra Club that... Uh, well, I'll let you explain it to us, Josh. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm actually the lead organizer for Sierra Club Military Outdoors. And uh, long story short, our program is to use the outdoors to kind of help military veterans, active duty, and their families kind of overcome the challenges of military life, be it uh, combat wounds, both the invisible and the visible, or just frequent deployments and other challenges of military life. And I've found from my personal experience that the outdoors is a huge uh, treatment for that. And so we're kind of spearheading it through the Sierra Club to, to send that out to my brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you a little bit about your uh, history with the military and also with, with climbing. We'll just jump right into it. Um, you said that in the Army, in your Army, or were Army, uh, that you had done a little bit of a, uh, of climbing type experiences with the army, uh, but it was after you you were uh, discharged uh, not too long ago, right? The uh, well, when I was or actually retired, the, or yeah, when I was in the army, yeah. um, did just basic level of climbing, just to know enough to be safe to get over certain obstacles. Mm-hmm. Never, never at the level of sport or any kind of enjoyment. Okay. And it was actually after my second tour in two thousand. Sounds to me like the military can pull in can suck enjoyment out of a lot of different things. Yeah, <laughs> and they made it a chore. Um, no, but it was actually after my second tour in 2008, and I was already diagnosed with some pretty severe PTSD, and I'd just taken command of a company at Fort Lewis, Washington, an infantry company. And uh, you look up, and you got Mount Rainier staring at you the whole time. And mm-hmm. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, so having that mountain there was just – that in itself was changing. And every day it's staring at me. And I'm like, I'm going to go climb it because it's there. Kind of like the whole Mallory thing. And uh, 
So I grabbed a, a ragtag group of, of my officers. One of them was blind in one eye with PTSD. A couple of them were new guys. A couple of them were old, multiple tours. And uh, in typical Army fashion, we decided to train ourselves on how to how to climb. Mm-hmm. And we ended up going to RMI, and we're like, hey, we want to climb Rainier. And they're like, all right, it's you know however much expensive you want to... Ne- no, 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 no. We, we want you to teach us. We're going to give you 100 bucks each. Give us a couple hours of crevasse rescue training, and we're going to get after it. Well, went through the training, went through our first climb. I think it was like the last day of September, so right. it, it was a pretty bad day to climb Rainier. And got about uh, halfway up the cleaver and a place. Okay, hold on a second. Let me ask you this. So you, you guys did a, a little bit of training with RMI, and but now you're on your own. Yes. You're, you're not guided did they send a guide with you or anything? No, like we that? didn't want to go. Okay, yeah, you're just like forget it. Before you get into the story of that, you know, how how receptive were they to this? Like, did they try to talk you out of it and all those sorts of things that they're supposed to do, or were they like, "Have a good time, boys"? They, they uh, at first they were really confused and kind of looked at us all bug-eyed. Right. And uh, one of their guides was walking by, and he was. Uh, He'd been climbing for a while, and I guess he worked with the military before. Okay. And he's like, no, no, I got this. I I got where these guys are coming from, and I'm going to go ahead and help them out. Oh, that's cool. Right on. Okay, so you're on the cleaver. Yeah, okay. And a little place called the Bowling Alley. Mm -hmm. And following a really faint footpath and uh, boulder-sized rock ends up coming down and hitting one of my uh, lieutenants in the back of the neck. Had a helmet on, just one of those moments where he was looking down and ended mm-hmm. up getting a spinal contusion. So we kind of pull off, assess the situation. Uh, he looks at me, says he's good, and, and starts to step off into the abyss like he's getting out of a chair. So I yank him back, kind of short rope him, and we just start hauling back down the mountain. Mm-hmm. To make matters worse or more epic, a storm rolls in 18 hours before it's supposed to. So now we're trying to get this guy with a, a head injury down in 60-mile-an-hour winds. Well, we struggled through it, finally got back down to the uh, the cabinet mirror, got in there tired, busted, and probably was one of the most amazing and happy experiences that, that we'd had. We At that moment, it, it sucked so bad, we were hooked, though. And that's that's how we all started into climbing. All right, so... <laughs> all right, so these guys, yourself included, you, when, you, when you're talking about your tours, you're talking about Iraq, correct? Yes. You've been on these tours in Iraq. In combat, I mean, you're you're actually a, a pretty heavily decorated combat veteran. Yeah, I call it the wrong place, wrong time awards. Okay, but. yeah, right. <laughs> um, obviously, some of these other guys probably were as well. Yes. So you go out to have this sort of adventure, and you basically end up in, in something like a simulated combat situation of having to evacuate a guy that's been injured. Exactly. And and yet we're we're arriving at this place where you guys are all stoked. Uh, it, it, it was awesome, and it kind of leads into a point that we've discovered with mountaineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've I've been diagnosed with pretty pretty severe PTSD, and we immediately fell in love with mountaineering because it mimics what I call the the good parts of combat. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you got the camaraderie, you've got the tightness uh, of a group that that builds when you're when you're overcoming adverse conditions as a team. You're in a and oftentimes it's a life and death situation where you know you cannot control mother nature you can control what you do sure you can prep um but you can't control it in the end and then also you have you know the logistics the operational capacity the the, the planning that goes around it and it all kind of mimics what we did as a team a close knit team in combat but instead of me getting blown up um on the mountain right right yeah so Quickly, how how how'd your boy turn out? I mean, was he all right? Oh, he's fine. He's okay. act, he's actually still hooking and jabbing in the army right now. So. Okay, yeah, he's a tough Kentucky boy, so okay, he was climbing within uh, probably a month after. Okay, that, so. all right, good, yeah. So, all right, so I mean, this is we're both kind of smiling. You're smiling as you're telling this story because I think you realize, you know, at at some level, it makes perfect sense. You know, like you said, you, you've got all the good parts except for the guys that are trying to kill you. Yeah. And maybe the mountain has sort of a feeling of an adversary, but it's certainly not as actively after you as as an enemy would be. But there's also some absurdity to it, you must realize. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, that you get out of combat and you're gonna you're gonna go find this like simulated version of it. So I I mean there's a paradox there, obviously, of 
having gone through these horrible traumatic experiences maybe that you never want to relive and yet here you are sort of trying to kind of come up to the edge of that a little bit um but i mean it, it, therapeutically does it make sense I, out there in the in the sort of learned world of these sorts of things I can kind of – I mean, I'll speak for myself and my small crew of veteran climbers and that for us, it's been absolutely therapeutic. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a lot of the – I found climbing better than any kind of therapy or drug that the Army was trying to throw at me for years. And I, right. you know, I struggled with alcohol for a while, um, got into mixed martial arts, which both that and alcohol don't mix. I pref- climb, recommend climbing you know, <laughs> way more. <laughs> um but uh, with climbing, like I said, it's just it's it was the ultimate therapy for us, and I think by pushing yourself up to that edge and kind of si- simulating what you went through, um, it, it it's kind of a, it, it, the start of a healing process, and, mm-hmm. and for me, it's been a lifelong and it'll continue to be a lifelong healing process, and that's why I'll continue to climb and mountaineer and also try to take my brothers and sisters up as well. Mm-hmm. Well. You know, there's a there was an old show, uh, one of the old podcasts. I, I think it might have been the one with Hayden Kennedy and Andrew Bishrat, where for a moment on this kind of line of thinking, you know, Hayden was talking about uh, climbing the Ogre last year, and you know they had a near casualty. I mean, uh, their partner Josh Wharton uh, was very very sick, and on the way down. Uh, you know, had some really close calls to, to kind of uh, p- being possibly one of those casualties you read about every year in, in the Himalayas or in high altitude mountaineering, you know, and, and there was just this casual conversation where I kind of brought up like, wow, that's really kind of seems like this weird parallel to where, again, you've got these tight knit guys working together in this really difficult environment, an environment that sometimes feels as though, you know, there's an active force trying to knock you off and then but then that we kind of extrapolated it to actually u- losing someone in that environment someone that does get killed and thinking back to some of the tragedies of of the past years in the himalayas all the way back to the 70s and 80s to have those guys come home from that and be put back in the world back in a normal daily life after such a traumatic experience I can only imagine that without anybody ever really putting their finger on it, that some of these guys have described this depression, described this like detachment that they feel when they come back. I mean, is that the kind of symptoms that you feel like you were going through or, or what, what kind of symptoms could you describe like what it's like to be diagnosed with, with this, uh, with PTSD? Yeah, I think. One of the hardest things for me to come to grips with over the years was once you're in combat, and especially for continued combat over over many months, over many years, uh, you're 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 changed completely, and you're changed forever. You're not mm-hmm. the same person. And coming home, it's 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 kind of a loose term, and I think uh, it's been hard for friends and family to understand that. Home is never home again because for me, I've always been half back in Iraq Mm -hmm. and half where I am now. And, and again, that's one of the reasons I turned to the mountains because the mountains, uh, you know, there's a book called Into the Silence. And I I think that's a great title for, because of Mallory, uh, and what they suffered in World War One and then going into the Himalayas. Going into the mountains is, uh, you know, it's silence for me and it's like, it's almost my home now. Uh huh. But, I, I hadn't known about that actually. That that was their previous experience, but yeah, it fits historically. Uh, World War One, yeah, that, what that they whole, called shell shock back then. Uh, that almost that entire expedition was all World War One veterans. Uh, and, uh, I have to I, read this book. Uh, yeah, it's into. I forget who wrote it, but it's into the silence. Sure, I'll look it up. Absolute amazing look at at veterans, and then also the quest for Everest and a lot of the issues that we're facing today, those guys faced back then, but mm-hmm. it was just looked at as totally different. Mm-hmm. So when you guys were on Rainier and, you know, quote unquote, the shit hit the fan, did you feel as though training kicked in? I mean, were you, were you like, Oh, I can assess this. I can, we can deal with this. Like, you know, do you feel like maybe there's almost this advantage in, in what you've been trained to do and, and facing some of these problems you might face on a, on a big mountain? My first thought was, uh, Seeing it, well, my first shot honestly was oh shit when Alden was stepping into the uh, into the abyss. But right. once we pulled him in, uh, 
you know, you just there's that moment, and in, in a lot of like medical rescue and in, in combat situations, they always tell you like take take smoke a cigarette, take that initial you know few seconds or minute to soak everything in. And I remember smiling, you know, seeing the storm come in, uh, having a wounded buddy, and just smiling. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> we're not getting blown up. And right. This is no nothing. <laughs> and, and, I, and I looked around, and, and my team's just looking at me, and they're all like, all right, yeah, let's let's roll. You know, we got this to deal with now. Kind of bummed the climb's over, but sure. let's get him down, and and, uh, and we'll go with it. So, How long ago was this? This was... September of 2008. Okay. So tell me about, uh, like, that was your first climb. Yeah. You know, you got these guys down. Um, you know, what came next for you as a climber? Well, f- first off, I had to sit all winter long and stare at Rainier, and it was just bugging me that entire winter. And that was, that was my first case of getting turned back by a summit and, uh-huh. ha- and just having it, you know, bore into your head. And I mean, it was worse because it was staring at me every sunny day, which I guess isn't too bad in Seattle because you don't see it too much in right. the winter. But uh, so we decided we, we kind of stepped back and, and just started training together that winter and, you know, went up, did some uh, runs on Mirror and other local volcanoes and then uh, came back as that same team in June. And, you know, in the mountains, the mountain that day, it was absolutely gorgeous at our first summit of Rainier. And mm-hmm. uh, that, that kind of cat, you know, that was the, 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 it was our second climb, but that's what really got us into mountaineering there because mm-hmm. we, we came back from uh, an adverse situation, checked out what we needed to do better, and then reattacked it. And it, it, what an amazing experience that was. And the, and the, what was the guy's name that got injured? Uh, his name was Alden Lynch. Okay. And he was on your team as well? Oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Nice. So you guys all summited, and but you kept on, you know, you kept on pursuing this. What, like I said, what, you know, as as you conquered Rainier, you did did your sort of rerun on that and got to the top. Uh, you know, what was next? How did you, how did you find yourself incorporating into the climbing community? Well, it's uh, at, at that point I did a little more climbing that summer, and then that team and I deployed to Iraq for our third tour. Okay, and for a year, so that kind of cut our climbing uh, sure. a little bit short. We had, uh, they have like the, the 10 foot jersey barriers over there. So we'd kind of boulder on those when we got the chance, but we're, you know, doing our, doing our job on our business trip over in Iraq that year. Sure. Uh, but while we were over there, we were just, we, we'd gotten bit with the bug and we were just dying to get back and climb. And we were sitting around one day and we're thinking, man, this really helped us out, this climbing, you know, we need to do something to help our brothers and sisters out too. Mm-hmm. And at that point, we kind of came together. And I was a company commander of a, co- uh, a headquarters company at that point, and the mascot was Hound. It was Hound Company. So we decided to call, create a small nonprofit called Hound Summit Team and real grassroots. And all we did was train with and then take our fellow veterans, just people, you know, Brothers and sisters to our left and right uh, on mountain climbing expeditions in the Pacific Northwest. I have this skeptical streak in me all the time, you know, and you, you, you read so much of the kind of literature the, the, that goes with mountaineering are these sort of re- really life-changing experiences that happen to people all the time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's repeated over and over again. But, you know, to me, like to have you guys do this, you know, and then go together back to Iraq and, and be in Iraq, like collectively thinking about this climb, collectively using it as, as, as a method to help you get through the, the crap that's going on over there. And then collectively decide that it helped you so much to help other people. I mean, that is really honestly, you know, without a doubt, a true life changing climb, you know, I mean, it's like, I mean, I, I don't expect you to comment on that. It just is like, when I, when I met you today and started hearing about this thing, just being inspired by it in the moment, but then, you know, to hear about somebody who really did move on and change their life because of a climb that they did is, is pretty inspiring. Did you find that you got a pretty good response from, from, you know, the people that you tried to kind of rope into this, this, uh, Hound Summit team? Uh, nonprofit. Yeah, for, I mean, we had a we were pretty successful for two years. We uh, you know we talked to is mainly climbers within the Washington area. A lot mm-hmm. of them from uh, the the Warrior Transition Battalion, which is essentially where uh, the a unit within the hospital where soldiers wounded in combat go to recover. 
Um, it's really important for us to work with them. Uh, mm-hmm. One of my platoon leaders and, and you know, fellow climbers, Dan Shoemaker, was actually blown up in a suicide car bomb in that third tour. And it was really uh, a transformational experience as well to get him back on a mountain after his recovery mm-hmm. and, uh, and and get him climbing again. What kind of injuries? Uh he he had a a pretty crazy story. He had blast injuries, severe TBI, shrapnel all throughout his body, and then he actually was. They found a brain tumor uh, when they were doing the MRI after the explosion. So not only was he dealing with the fact that uh, the combat injuries, he also had to fight cancer at that point. And then within a year, year and a half, this tough Arkansas boy is is on a mountain with me climbing in pain, but climbing. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And you talk about, I mean. I'm I'm the one that's supposed to be helping him, but climbing with somebody like that, I think he's helping me at that point. Because, uh-huh. like I said, it's a lifelong recovery, and seeing him go through that helps me just as much as I think it helps him too. Uh huh. So how much are how much are you guys working with, uh, you know, sort of disabled climbers? Um, are are you are you prepared and have the kind of skill set to to bring up you know people who've lost limbs and that sort of thing as well, or, or are you incorporating that? We, we do work with uh, vets with a, a wide variety of injuries. Mm-hmm. Our organization was not set up to train them how to use their prosthetics. Sure, sure. Um, and, but if it, there's a vet that knows how to use its pro, his, his or her prosthetic and can climb, then we're more than willing to climb with uh-huh. them. We were, just too, even, we were just too small of an organization to have that capability. Sure. So I mean, it's, it's an advanced skill. I mean, you, yeah. you probably, at this point, you know, we're still learning – and probably still are learning your own skills to a certain extent yeah. and becoming a facilitator rather than someone training training those to climb. I was just sort of curious because, of course, that's our image as well from, from you guys coming home from combat yeah. with injuries like that. And, you know, Timmy O'Neill and Paradox and those guys um, kind of specialize in that sort of thing too. I don't know if you're at all uh, aware of their programs and that oh, sort yeah, of thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, in April of this year, I actually merged with a group called Veterans Expeditions. Mm-hmm. Which is which was founded by Stacy Bear and Nick Watson out of Colorado, and uh, I know they've worked pretty closely with Paradox in the past, and mm-hmm. a lot of their climbers, you know, there's the Mike Kirby's out there and a few others that we've all we've all kind of worked together. The the climbing community is pretty small and tight knit. The the vet climbing community is probably ten times smaller and right. more tight knit. So. I think they've got a wonderful organization, and it fulfills a very specific need. And I give them all the kudos in the world for the work they do. So I just thought of something while you were saying that, you know, and this idea of this tight-knit community. You've got climber community. You've got veteran community. You've got even guys that are coming back that that get together as a group because of, of, uh, like you said, sort of visible and invisible wounds. You know, so can you comment at all on sort of the mixing of all these sorts of people? I mean, do you feel like it's easy to enter the climbing community? Do you feel like there's there's uh, a good way of mixing these two groups together? Because in a lot of ways, you know, we started. You said that your rank was major, the, yeah, but at the at the Sierra Club, oh, I'm now officially a hippie first class, hippie first class. So, <laughs> you know, we usually don't think of the military that way. Um, and like I said, there's probably all these great training things that fit in, but is there any sort of kind of, I don't know, maybe clashing or is it a meeting of the worlds between sort of the climbing community and, and the military types? I think it's uh, – at first I perceived there was kind of a separation, and then I realized, honestly, it was just all about getting out and climbing, going mm-hmm. to the crags, going to the climbing gym, going to different events, you know, working with the American Alpine Club, uh, the Mountaineers. And what I really like about the climbing community, no matter what your sex, your religion, your race, your color, climbers are climbers. Mm -hmm. And once you're out actually on the crags, they don't care where you were or where you've been. It's all about the climbing at that point. And I just think the more frequently we got out, and really reached out to the non-vet climbing community. Mm-hmm. The more we started to integrate, the more friends we made, the more support we got, and it's 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 been an absolute uh, for me. It's been an absolute lifesaver just to have a new support network. Having left the military, and they, they call it the big green womb for a reason because it's it, there's a, a big support network built into the sure. military. Okay, 
and now being slowly adopted into the climbing community, it, it's kind of establishing a new support network for for me and my fellow climbers. So mm-hmm. it's been really cool. You've you've taken this uh, what started out as this Hound Summit team uh, nonprofit, mm-hmm. basically getting funded through what donations. Uh, um, a lot of friends and family at sure. first, and then we had a lot of great companies like Outdoor Research, okay, Stirling Stirl- cool. Rope, where we called them up and we're like, hey, we don't need money. This is what we're doing. Can you spare a rope or two? Sure. Can you spare? And they're like, man, this is great. Right on. Let's do it. Send them a couple pictures back. And we've had a lot of, a lot of good relationships with them. And, okay. then, and, then, and that's kind of transferred on to Veterans Expeditions and then the Sierra Club Military Outdoors as well. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to get to. So now you're working with the Sierra Club. And that seems like it's something that's expanded like way outside of cl- just climbing. But in a kind of an outdoor focus on all levels, um, can you sort of talk about the the maybe expanded mission there to a certain extent? Yeah, I can start with Sierra Club Military Outdoors. Like I said, is we're trying to bring the military community outside. As you've heard me talk about, the outdoors, specifically mountaineering, helped me overcome those challenges. Uh, I think the Sierra Club several years ago realized that there was a, a segment of the population that they weren't engaging, that you have a, a population that is already service-oriented because they've already proved that they're going to stand up and defend their country, or even if it's just defending the person in their left and right, mm-hmm. there's that innate service-related quality to them. And then you have, on top of that, some of the leaders that come out of that community are you know, tried and true in some of the most dangerous high stakes environment in the world. And why would you not want them on your side working for you? And uh, getting them outside the unit, the Sierra Club's mission is explore, enjoy, protect. And growing up in Cleveland, I never really cared about the outdoors at all. And it, w- it wasn't until I got outside, specifically Rainier and then the North Cascades, I'm like, wow, I really kind of care about these areas. I kind of want to protect it. And overnight, I became a conservationist. And that's kind of uh, what naturally kind of happens with military work and with the uh, with the Sierra Club. Uh, our, our goal isn't to have them agree with us 100%. and be nice if they did because that's a great supporter. But I haven't found one person yet in the club that agrees with the club 100%. Mm-hmm. But if we can get natural allies out there that even if they want to protect just one place from whatever might be threatening it, that's that's a victory in my opinion, and if mm-hmm. you're helping them overcome the challenges of their military life, that you know that's two victories right there as well. Mm-hmm. And with uh, some of the programs we're running with Sierra Club Military Outdoors is we're currently partnered with the active duty military in, uh, in in a resiliency program, and essentially we're training active duty leaders as outdoor leaders so they can turn around and lead their troops they can lead their their families out in the outdoors to kind mm-hmm. of build self-confidence you know uh resiliency and, and you, like again utilize those intrinsic values of the outdoors and you know several years ago the army came up with this awesome program to kind of improve the mind body and spirit of their soldiers we we're really good at preparing Guys and girls to go out the door and kick down doors, but we were not really good at bringing them home or Mm -hmm. getting them ready to see what they were going to see over there. So they came up with this resiliency program and great intent, but like any bureaucracy, it got boiled down to a PowerPoint presentation once a quarter and you you hand them the piece of paper and be more resilient. (laughs) You're on on your way. All right. I'm I'm resilient now. Yeah. Right. I order you to be resilient. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. And and what we're trying to do is take a a great program in concept and add an outdoor component to it uh, to allow them to kind of further enact it. And, you know, some of the other things we're doing is uh, connecting military families with the outdoors uh, and outdoor organizations regionally. Uh, we're, we're trying to bring back mountaineering into the Sierra Club, especially through the veteran side. Okay. And uh, do a lot of things like climate recon to 9-11 climbs and just, you know, outdoor adventure film school. Just a, a lot of stuff to create veteran leaders within the outdoor community mm-hmm. so that they can turn around and not only, lead, you know, help themselves, but lead their peers and also, maybe even become leaders in the conservationist community, much like you know the David Browers and Petzolds and uh, from the Tenth Mountain Division in World War II. Sure, yeah. When you were talking about it earlier, that started rolling through my head. Is that so many of those guys 
from that era, you know, did become whether or not they, they, they started these companies or these, these organizations or went on to become great mountaineers themselves or were great mountaineers or started ski resorts or, I mean, all these different things that, that branched out from that, that it's legendary, you know? And, uh, let me ask you this about this resiliency program when you're talking about like, you know, getting these people out into the outdoors or whatever. So let's take, you said these military families, like, what does that literally look like? I mean, how are you, you know, how does it work? Okay. The way we've actually just completed. I mean, there's probably different different ways, but how is it going to work, or sure. how's it how's it? Yeah, what does it look like? We just completed our first uh, leadership training session down okay. in uh, a beautiful part of Texas. And essentially, what we do is we train these active duty leaders as uh, Sierra Club outings leaders, so they're okay. kind of protected under our umbrella. We also work with partners. Uh, like for this instance, we worked with uh, International Wilderness Leadership School. And brought down some of their experts to come down and teach them in, in you know, hard technical skills training. Okay. Uh, we're also working with an organization called Project Rebirth and Outward Bound. And Outward Bound is kind of uh, working some of the techn- technical skills, but they're really good for their, their, their soft skills that, you know, working the group dynamics and, and working with people with some of these issues. So – once these once these guys and gals are done with it, it's a, it's a pretty good training regimen. You, know, you get to be an outdoor leader and you get some sweet skills on the side. They then go back to their units. Mm-hmm. They're already either the master resiliency trainer or the assistant trainer, which you know they're basically in charge of that unit's resiliency program. And they begin to set up you know monthly or quarter quarterly events where they can identify high risk soldiers that. Maybe just need a little something else. Maybe something happened in their lives. Maybe they're suffering from some trauma. And, you know, they, they target them and take them out on be it a, a day nature hike or a four day backpacking expedition, mm-hmm. with, you know, within that area. And then in addition, uh, what's really important about the Sierra Club being involved is our training allows them to, to expand out to family as well. And one of the most, I think, under appreciated aspects of the challenge of military life is what our families go through. Right. And this allows them to not only help their soldiers, but now they can take family and children out on day hikes. And in the future, we plan on even training military spouses as leaders. So while the, while their, their spouses are away at war, you know, they can help themselves uh, on the ground instead of like, you know, feeling like they need a handout, which nobody in the military wants, or instead of feeling helpless, they're empowering themselves to go out and, you know, build their own resiliency. Mm-hmm. On both ends of this thing, again, within the conservation community and within within the military community, what kind of resistance are you, have you gotten to this, if any? It, it, it's really funny because wherever I go, um, Sierra Club, if I represent the Sierra Club and I, I walk into the Pentagon or Washington and they're like, <laughs> oh, this communist godless bastard. Right. <laughs> and, uh, but the, and, and then walk into, into some of the Sierra Club circles, it's, you know, oh, look at this, you know, former right wing fascist army guy. Sure. And it's just these awesome stereotypes that crack me I up. I can only imagine. I mean, that's why I'm asking the question. So. It, and I love it because I'm kind of straddling both worlds. Which, mm-hmm. when you engage, uh, when you engage people on the far right and the far left with this, and being a veteran and being a conservationist and a climber, people's heads start to explode because there's, you know, they're like these issues are making sense in my head and they're on both sides. And right. So it, it it's been a really cool tool for me to kind of bridge these two communities mm-hmm. together, and. Uh, Oftentimes, I find that uh, the rhetoric is you, doesn't really apply to most people. I find like with anything in life, if you get a group of environmentalists and military in the same room, within a couple minutes, there are people talking about things that people do, common interest, right. and you know, having a great time. And I think it's really all about just getting people in the same room and talking, and that's how you're going to crack some of these issues. Well, yeah, it's interesting because a lot of my uh, my family i grew up in in chicago but actually a lot of my family's in northern wisconsin and not really i don't really can't really put them into a political bent but you know they're they're outdoors people in a way that's different than than us climbers you know they're hunters and fishermen and they they tend to fall on you know whatever kind of right-wingish attitudes and yet i've always just sort of like wondered why 
we don't have more of this common ground because if they want to hunt and fish, those places need to be protected. Mm-hmm. If we want to hike and climb, those places need to be protected. And yet it just has always felt not, not always. I mean, there's plenty of conservationist hunting organizations, but you know, when you're actually out there and, and have the people, you know, recreating together, there's a lot of times there can be these weird, like dichotomy conflicts that in a lot of ways don't make any sense. I mean, we all want this place to stay the way it is for us and for future generations. And I don't know, maybe, maybe it, it has a feeling like that of, of people with the same goals, but, but, you know, having, having to cross this, this weird, uh, ideological or political gap to kind of get there. I, I think it's, uh, it's a long road and I think we've already started down it. Cause like you said, there are, you know, hunting and fishing conservationist groups mm-hmm. and, and people are starting to realize that climate change or climate disruption is, is the big elephant in the room mm-hmm. and figuring out whether it, it exists naturally or if it's man-made or if it's a, you know, a, a leftist myth or, you know, who started it? That we're beyond that. The climate's already changing. Mm-hmm. Let's not look at the blame. Let's let's start to do something about it because it's affecting both their their like you said, it's affecting their hunting grounds, their fishing. And it's also affecting our climbing and, and you know, a lot of the other, you know, recreation industry. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people are starting to see that and they're starting to come together that you know what, I might not agree with you on some other issues, but the outdoors is a major resource sure. and we've got to come together to figure out a way to protect that or we're both going to be pretty much mm-hmm. SOL. Mm-hmm. Are there any other like uh, kind of branches of this, this Sierra Club outreach thing that you wanted to talk about? Sure. I think one of the, one of the biggest challenges I've faced is how to get the Sierra Club and the Department of Defense to talk to each other. <laughs> now... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that made me laugh, but it just seems it seems oh, like sure. a pretty yeah. hard task. But go for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we coming on board recently. Uh, we I reached out to the Sierra Club, and we've actually found that about ten percent of our membership and ten percent of our leadership are veterans. And in the Sierra Club, over we have a lot of different campaigns and programs that are going on, but everything is under the umbrella of climate change slash climate disruption. And when you think about it, U.S. security is, a, uh, is extremely affected by climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in my opinion, and, and, and you, you can read it in a lot of places, climate change is going to cause uh, – is probably going to be one of the single biggest causes – of all of our future conflicts in the next 30 years. Because sure. you're talking about energy, you're talking about arable land, water rights, et cetera. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I, it seems as though even like the Joint Chiefs have, have logged in on this, yeah. this idea of, of what's, what kind of conflicts this is going to start to cause. Exactly. And we have we're two organizations coming at the same issue from two different directions. Mm-hmm. And... You know, uh, we've started a, a group within the military, within the Sierra Club, and it's basically our mil- military leadership team. Mm-hmm. And our whole goal is to get the club to start addressing the Department of Defense on everything from sustainable energy to, to climate change to you know any kind of issue that we care about, alternative fuels. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's it's something that needs to be done. If if you take away the name of the military, the the Department of Defense is one of the biggest employers in the world. It's uh, a large polluter, but it's also one of the largest conservationist organiza- organizations in the world. They, they do a lot for habitat and species protection, uh, and they're really held to federal guidelines as far as, uh, as, as how they operate. In fact, I think they hire more, they've employed more biologists than any other organization in the country. Mm-hmm. But under any other name, the club would be talking to, uh, to that organization. Sure. And so – let's get together and let's talk. We don't have, nobody likes war. Right. You know, I, a 10 year veteran and I, I don't, I'm just as I'm anti-war, uh, but doesn't mean that uh, we can't talk to the military and come together on the climate change issue and, you know, try to pursue, you know, some, some alternatives to what we're doing right now. Now, what, isn't it true that, that, uh, uh I'm going to say, you know, one of the, the highest ups, in the army or in the military. Didn't I read a few years ago that they started to call on the military to look for alternative energy options 
um, simply as a as as a matter of of security. Is oh it, yeah, it's, it, it's a great way to start. I mean, you, you talk about all the the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and a, a good chunk of our casualties are from. You know, the majority are from fighting, but you have a good chunk of casualties that are just transporting endless amounts of supplies. Right. And if you including go, fuel. Including fuel. And if you can or and, and water and batteries or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And if you can find sustainable and reasonable ways to power your equipment in combat, you're gonna reduce the the time of soldiers being on the ground. You're gonna reduce I mean Carbon emissions from all the convoys going. It, it just increases efficiency and safety, and you know, it's just at a tactical level. It's just a practical way to kind of to, to get into the whole conservation movement. Right, and, and I mean, as you just said, the def- the, the Department of Defense is an enormous organization mm-hmm. that like people don't even know how big it is because they're kind of not into the business of advertising how big it is. You've got the military as this user of, of fuel and of energy, you know, on this massive scale. And so for any of these organizations to begin to shift, that's kind of one of those like tidal movements that kind of needs to start happening. You know, I feel like a lot of times, you know, you hear about, you know, weatherizing your house. Mm-hmm. And yes, if a lot of people get together and do that, it helps. But to have some sort of massive organization like the military say, well, we're going to put our time and research into this because, you know, whatever climate change, it's just a security issue that we need to deal with. I mean, that feels like the thing that gets the ball rolling on a systemic level mm-hmm. to me. So, I mean, I guess you're you're like, I don't know, knocking on the smallest door in the giant <laughs> building. But it's still, I mean, it's still something to have someone trying to bridge this gap. And, and I think we kind of go at it in in two directions. Mm-hmm. The the military leadership team in the Sierra Club that uh, we're kind of figuring out our mission right now. They're they're going from the top down, addressing these major issues. Uh, I'm addressing it from the way I know how from personal experience mm-hmm. through the Sierra Club Outdoors slash Sierra Club Military Outdoors program, where. Uh, it, People kind of laugh sometimes. It sounds cliched, but you know, John Muir, David Brower, the reason they made, uh, invented the conservation movement, and then you know, it, it just expanded it greatly in in uh, the middle part of the last century, was because they got people outside, mm-hmm. and that's one of our biggest missions. If we get people outside, they begin to care about it. If you don't know what's out there, you're not going to care about it. You don't even know about what it is to protect. Mm-hmm. And, and the same thing with the veterans movement. Get them outside. And for me personally and foremost, helping my brothers and sisters you know, overcome these challenges. But also it gets them outside. It starts to get them to care about what's out there. And it starts to create, you know, conservationists, and you know, that's that's kind of my grassroots, bottom-up effect to try to affect what's going sure. on in the in in, uh, in our country and in the Department of Defense right now. So, can I ask you a couple uh, questions about sort of your journey, your sure. arc? I mean, from you said that you grew up in Cleveland, uh, not caring about the outdoors. Obviously, eventually joined the military at a relatively young age, and then now you've ended up. I mean, in this completely other world as sort of this conservation leader, this climber, this, uh, you know, first class hippie, um, you know, what, what first class, I'm not in first class. Ah, Yeah, right. (laughs) That is different, isn't it? It's a different semantic version. But, uh, I mean, what, what kind of kid were you in, in, uh, in Cleveland growing up? Yeah, I was just average blue collar kid. You know, my, Mm -hmm. my, my stepfather was, uh, was a steel worker. My father's worked for the Boy Scouts for I don't know how many years, and my mom was a teacher. And mm-hmm. grew, you know, grew up getting into trouble with my friends. And you know, I had some military history with my grandfathers, but there wasn't a real, you know, strong multi generational uh, military, you know, tradition. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of always knew that I wanted to to, to serve in some capacity. Um, a lot of it I, I blame on the cartoon GI Joe for for getting me at an early age. Sure. But, uh, uh, I I would imagine there's, you know, the 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 army was sort of rubbing their hands when that particular cartoon hit the airwaves. Yeah, best recruitment ever yeah. in the eighties. <laughs> uh, that and Red Dawn made me want to sure, get trained sure, up. Wolverines, the yeah. Russians were coming, but, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, and, you know, I, I was kind of a, a, you know, I got into a lot of trouble in high school because you know I, I had fun and did some crazy stuff, and mm-hmm. I had the option of either enlisting or. 
my my mom told me I could go to the Citadel, and which it's Citadel. If you haven't heard about it, it's kind of like the West Point for bad kids. They'll, uh-huh. they'll they'll take everybody, but you gotta you gotta earn your right to be there, and that really helped me kind of straighten out some of my priorities. So let me ask you this: This is an academy, um, you know, versus just walking into a recruitment office. I've actually not always been clear on what the difference is. So it's like a it's like a college type experience. Oh yeah, it's going f- to the going towards the military. It's a full college yeah. uh, down in Charleston, South sure. Carolina. Mm-hmm. And I think when I was there, I think only about forty percent of the people actually went to the military. Oh okay. And uh, but it's a military college established, you know, pre Civil War. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was kind of the West Point of the South at at one point. Yeah. When, when things had divided. Exactly. Yeah. So what was your experience there like? Uh, I absolutely loved it. Uh, I mean, it was hard on me because, uh, again, I learned by running into the wall about 40 times. <laughs> and uh, so I had my fair share of uh, of doing military punishment there. But I think uh, that that kind of shaped me uh, to – you would think going to a military college would kind of shape you into a conservative mindset. And it actually – I think maybe being a little rebellious and, and they have a great education as well it really opened my eyes to the world and different cultures and different religions. And uh, I think it really prepared me to not only be a military officer, but, you know, to kind of be able to transition into the role I am now. That's really interesting because, yeah. I mean, I think it would be, I guess it's probably a stereotype, but, you know, I think it would be easier to think that, yeah, you guys were all like, you know, turned turned into these sort of like, you know, one way thinking robots at a place like that. Yeah, you know, and I, there was a little bit of cliched rebellion too. Sure. Like I had the the Che Guevara quote on my back when I was there, and uh, you, you know th- that kind of thing. But you know, and but the school itself, I and mean, just awesome school mm-hmm. prepared me, especially to go to war. So and then, at, you know, move from there. So what years were this? Was uh, this sorry? Uh, Ninety six to two thousand one. Okay, and so you got out of that, and and basically did did end up enlisting. Uh, or they prepared you to be an officer. Yeah, you you go through ROTC there. Okay, so. yeah, and then uh, went straight to Iraq. Yeah, I, I did my uh, army officer basic training mm-hmm. for a couple months, and then got to my unit at the 101st Airborne in January of '03. Mm-hmm. And about two months later, I was crossing the berm in, in the invasion of Iraq as a you know young 23 year old uh, platoon leader. Mm-hmm. So you know, without like. I mean, we could t- probably talk about those experiences all night or all day, but uh, you know, characterize this sort of thing for us. Like, what kind of things you were facing over there? What kind of uh, is there any way to sort of characterize it to some some people like myself who never been in combat or never been enlisted in the army and and uh, never will be? I'm too damn old to be to, to start <laughs> with, but. You know, I mean, like, you're a young kid and you're facing mortality, you're facing, you know, this crazy environment, you know, can you, can, is there any way to sort of characterize it that you've found? Sure. Uh, it's, you know, obviously the most defining experience of my life. And I'll kind of mm-hmm. lump all three tours into one in, mm-hmm. in talking about it. But, you know, when I was 23, um, I was immortal. And then being quickly faced with your own mortality, I mean, that, that, that wakes you up and it ages you a little bit. And especially being responsible for the lives of, you know, 40 other soldiers at that point as a platoon leader. And then eventually as a company commander when it was over 200. Uh, it, it's a sobering ex- experience, but it's also the best experience I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Uh, being immersed in a foreign culture, a beautiful culture with a beautiful people that unfortunately we're fighting with, with uh, a portion of that population, which, you know, that, that that's a shame. But being able to be immersed in that culture was an amazing experience for me. And then, you know, the the bonds of friendship and, and trust and respect that you make with, with the, the soldiers to your left and right is – uh, like I said earlier, the only thing that's even come close to mimicking that is, you know, being on a, a pretty tough or a pretty a serious climb. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and combat's combat. What can I say? It's 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 you know, it's it's not like the movies. It's 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 a lot more slow and deliberate, and it sticks with you. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, there's a lot of bad things that that happen in combat that you know I'll carry with me for the rest of my life. But there's a lot of good things that came out of, of those three tours as well, whether it was, you know, things we accomplished for each other or things we accomplished for the helpless and the, and the less fortunate. 
that uh, you know I wouldn't trade it for the world, good and bad. So, mm-hmm. so kind of on a bigger level, like you're obviously a really smart guy, um, and you said something right there that made me think. You you have this respect for this culture, and then you you know had to be fighting a portion of it. Mm-hmm. You know you had. You have to hold all these horrible things in your head alongside of all these sort of good things. I mean, as somebody who's thoughtful and someone who who is intellectual in any way, I mean, is it difficult to kind of have all these conflicting ideas, you know, swimming around in your head while you're over there? Or, or, or are you able just to, you know, stick with it and do the job and, and, and take care of what you need to take care of? Uh, honestly, over there, I was able to kind of shut that off, mm-hmm. and you just you just put you, you put it in the back of your mind because you have responsibilities to those around you, whether you know they be my the soldiers to my left or right, or the Iraqi counterparts, or the the, the civilians in the area that we were we were there to defend, uh, and then. You just bury that. Any any kind of disagreements I had with policies, whether mm-hmm. I didn't understand them or I or I might have been opposed to them, uh, you put all that away because I, I you know I signed an oath and I was there to do what I was supposed to do, and that's where the struggle comes in. The lifelong struggle for me is it's not when you're there that it really starts to burn. It's when you come home, mm-hmm. and that's what I'll deal with for the rest of my life. Is when you have time to think about that, and that's where all those issues come back. And that's where the people that aren't there, um, that's the, but they'll always be there in your head, and uh, and that's when the issues begin. Mm-hmm. Certainly, yeah. I mean, I I don't know how you feel about uh, how well sort of art, literature, or any of these other access points for the rest of us mm-hmm. to access, whether it's the combat experience or simply the military experience or the war experience. Um, you know, as a I have an English degree and and um, a number of books that that. I've delved into, I think, have may, maybe at least given us a window. You know, uh, one book in particular called The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. Yeah. Um, sort of the, I think one of the scene now is one of the seminal books from, from the Vietnam era or trying to sort of deal with that. Um, you know, that's the major theme in there is, is sort of the, the, the conflict that you have to kind of get rid of when you're there. You know, what, like you said, whether it's, dealing with policy or whether it's dealing with the good and the bad or, or remembering people that are gone. Um, but then he, also, you know, he does talk about coming back to it and having it sort of always ticking away in your mind. I mean, how do you feel about sort of, you said it's not like movies, but um, about art, about literature, about those sorts of things. Are they able to give us any sort of insight that, that gets us anywhere near where, where, where you were and what it was like uh, to be in those sorts of situations? I, I think they can try. I think uh, two really good books that, that talk about PTSD and some of the uh, some of the struggles that people go with. Uh, I, again, I forget the name of the author, but it's uh, Achilles in Vietnam and then mm-hmm. Odysseus in America. Mm-hmm. And they kind of parallel ancient the ancient Greek Iliad and Odyssey with what Vietnam veterans went through uh, in the war and then when they're coming home. In, mm-hmm. in my generation, and our war has a lot in common with what with, with the Vietnam vets had gone through. Certainly. So we're benefiting from a much better support network and, and uh, infrastructure when we come home. Uh, I, I think they can give you an insight, but uh, only an insight. Sure. And I know it sounds cliched that you know you don't understand unless you've been there, and uh, you know it, it's kind of true. And I think it's not kind of true; it's just flat out true. <laughs> I mean, there's no way around it. And, and yeah. but I think the best for, for instead of trying to like understand and know, mm-hmm. I think it's more of uh, you can acknowledge and accept and and, and try to know, mm-hmm. but uh, and, and and just support. Mm-hmm. And because it, it's it's hard to explain why. You know, this gets kind of personal for me because I've had a lot, lot of struggles with PTSD mm-hmm. um, to the point where, you know, I, I have an, an amazing wife, an amazing family, um, a good life. I, you know, I was, I, I was highly decorated, great friends. I'm in this climbing community, but then there's times where, you know, I want to put a bullet to my or a gun to my head and. You know, why is that? I don't know. Like, sure. it, and that's where the lifelong battle goes. And you know, I think I think the best thing you can do to you can try to empathize is maybe what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean it. It's it's a strange feeling, and and we just met, and and this program right now is allowing me to ask you questions 
that, you know, standing on the floor of OR, you know, two hours ago, I would never have felt comfortable to broach. And I think that's sort of one of the problems maybe is that a lot of folks don't know maybe how to approach it. And, you know, you're very open and willing to talk about it. And that's, I think that's just going to be super beneficial to anybody who listens to this. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's definitely a difficult thing because we watch the media and, and, and we hear about PTSD every day and we hear about veterans coming home every day. But that doesn't make it easy for any of us to broach it with the friends and the family and the people that we know that are coming back, if we even know any of them. Uh-uh. You know, you guys are a really small, small segment of the population. I think it's one of the things that's that's wrong with these conflicts is that we're asking you guys to do something that that ninety nine percent of us are unwilling to do. Now that's a whole other thing. But that also, I think, you know, makes it difficult. I think for for the rest of the rest of the population to kind of where do we start, you know? And, and uh, I mean, these support groups and, and this thing that you're doing that, that integration has to be the most important thing, I think. I mean, yeah. And I, I think what one of the best thing and what, what I've always tried to do in my work, whether it be through the nonprofit or through Sierra club military outdoors is uh, I think reintegration is probably the best thing that we can we can look for and try to hope for mm-hmm. um if in five ten years i'm out of a job because i'm working uh you know specifically along military lines because veterans are reintegrated into society that's awesome it's, it's the same thing with right. vedex uh veterans expeditions i don't want any more vet climbers i want our organization to go away because i want them just to be climbers sure and uh, it's it's a long, hard process. It's a very complex process uh, for, you know, like I said, just you know, coming home, it's not quite home anymore. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of things that you'll never understand, but I think just supporting them is, is the best part. And one thing I'll say, too, is, uh, and I can speak for a lot of my brothers and sisters, is that, you know, I think pity and, you know, handouts are probably two of the worst things you can do for a vet. Uh, a lot of vets, including myself, and a, cl- and a lot that have been catastrophically wounded, uh, have done amazing things. You know, making making decisions and actions uh, at the tactical level on the streets of Iraq and in the hills of Afghanistan that have strategic implications. Mm-hmm. And you know, they're successful leaders, proven in high stakes, high risk environments. And they want to come back and lead. They don't want to come back and be, you know, handheld along. Sure. They want to continue to serve in society, and they want to continue to lead from the front. And I think that's an awesome way for for people to, uh, if they want to help vets. I mean, that's a great empower them. That mm-hmm. it's all about empowerment. Mm-hmm. So, well, you know, I I have a very uh, almost elitist feeling about climbers. And I've always said that I don't I don't care what you say, but the, the community is is strong, you know. It's it's somehow feels like a cut above, and so it makes me really happy to to hear you say that, you know, as you've been accepted into that climbing community, that yeah, it's great that we're just all climbers, yeah. and you know, we're good at it, we're bad at it, we fall, we 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 don't fall, or whatever else. I mean, I've I honestly always felt like it was a very open group of people. But obviously, I don't know that for sure because I'm just an average white guy and, you know, we're a dime a dozen in in rock climbing. So to hear you say that that kind of uh, felt as though it was an accepting accepting you on face value kind of community, I think is great. So uh, that's good for all of us listeners, right on people. So let me ask you this as as we sort of close this out and and bring your, your story around. You know, where are your personal goals as a climber? What, what are you looking for? Uh, where are you going with this thing in the future? Uh, my tick list is long. And uh, <laughs> honestly, what do you got going on right now? <laughs> well, we've got uh, over the next year, you know, we've got some uh, uh, a traverse in the Olympics. We've got some ice climbing with Conrad Anchor coming up next winter. Uh-huh. Looking at some traverses in the Tetons and the Pickets and. Uh, Long term, over the next couple of years, Veterans Expeditions in the Sierra Club, we're looking at uh, Denali and then mm-hmm. Logan and then 8,000-meter peaks after that. We're, we're Ultimately, I'd like to get an international veteran climbing effort going where we're working with Brits, Canadians, Aussies, sure. and tackling 8,000-meter peaks, kind of 
kind of in the style of the golden age, you know, post, right. post World War One and World War Two vets going back to the Himalayas and uh, going into the silence, if you will. Well, all right, that sounds awesome. I mean, it sounds like you you've uh, you know you've taken what you you know, like I said, the good and the bad from from your tours, and now you've got these opportunities that you know, in a lot of ways, may not have come your way without that sort of stuff. Well, yeah, like I said, good and bad, I wouldn't trade it. I mean, uh-huh. I'm in a great spot, and there's a great community, be it vet and climber, and, you know, life is good right now, man. All right, well, I'm going to go ahead and link um, as much information as I can about these programs uh, on the website, so hopefully some folks will get in touch with you and, and want some more information. But uh, in the meantime, thanks a lot for coming in. Um, I'm really glad I ran into you today and, and sat you down because this has been uh, a really inspiring uh, interview to do with you so i appreciate it yeah you're welcome it's been great thanks for having me all right some pretty heavy wisdom from a man beyond his years i think i don't even know how old josh is i couldn't tell you even by looking at him and again, if you're at all interested in what Josh is up to, seek it out at the Sierra Club's website or you can go to normalcouch.com and click on those links. I would also like to point out that the guy who introduced him and I, a guy named Stacy Bear, has gone through some similar trials and has written about them and has talked about them in a couple different places. So if this story was interesting to you, maybe check those out. Stacy wrote a piece for Luke Mihal's Climbing Zine, the volume 5, the current volume, which you can get over at climbingzine.com. Luke was a guest on episode 42 of the Enorma Cast. And also, Fitz Cahal over at Dirtbag Diaries put out an episode called Homefront, where Stacy tells a story in no uncertain terms, uh, produced by Jen Altschul. And after editing this one last night, I listened to Homefront today and... Uh, it hits you in, you know, the way that only the Dirtbag Diaries can. So go and check that out. Just head over to their website and look for the Homefront episode. All right, folks. Thanks again for listening. I really do appreciate everything that you guys, the listeners, the fans do for the Enorma cast. Keep it up. Keep listening. Tell your friends. And don't forget to check your knot. <laughs> Come far, pilgrim. She is like the thought. Were it worth the trouble? Ah. What trouble?